0: It's Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. Welcome to a new episode. It's July 11th, 2022. We're going to go into a few issues that occurred during the week in the news, and but I promised last week to start off with a memory of my first client that I ever had on my own, which is was the Ultimate Warrior, the very famous professional wrestler. Now, You remember him. He's the one with the crazy long hair. He had the tassels on his arm. He shook the ropes when he came in. I I don't know how many of you actually are familiar with professional wrestling, but if you grew up in the 70s as I did, you know enough about professional wrestling to know who the ultimate warrior is. He was very famous, probably after Hulk Hogan. He was probably the most famous in the 80s into, I guess, the late 80s into the early 90s, mid 90s. Anyway, he had come to see us. I was at my first job. I was working for Michael Kennedy at the time. It was my first job out of law school. His name was Jim Helwig. That was his actual real name, or at least until he changed it. And he was just like this giant long-haired wrestler from Indiana the Midwest. And he had gotten really huge at the time that he came to see us. I had followed wrestling, as I said, since I was a small kid. And even through college, I remember I have memories of sitting in uh, my apartment in college watching SummerSlam and the big pay-per-view events for wrestling. It was pretty big back then, and college ended for me in 1987. So uh, I do remember remember a lot of it. And I have memories as a kid, as I said, of of watching you know the old-time wrestlers, and this isn't that old because there were certainly decades before me, but it was Bruno Sammartino was huge. And then Bob Backlund came on. He was like a young, uh, new face, and he was huge in his own right. I remember Chief J. Strongbow. Do you remember him? He was the guy who dressed up uh, as an Indian. And remember superstar Billy Graham. Chief J. Strongbow was one of my favorites. He would go on the warpath in the ring, and it was was really hilarious uh, as a kid to watch. He'd be getting his ass beat, but then uh, all of a sudden he'd go on the warpath, and when he'd go on the warpath in the ring... Uh, His opponent would be basically begging uh, to not uh, get the crap kicked out of him, which was certainly coming next. Chief J. Strombo actually, though, was an Italian guy, last name Scarpa. But back then, wrestling was all about the most grotesque racial stereotypes, ethnic stereotypes, but it didn't matter. People didn't really get offended back then at all. I mean, I remember thinking back on it, no one got offended. And I, I really loved the old wrestling back then, you know, the stuff from the 70s, even though it wasn't nearly as big as the wrestling that occurred in the mid to late 80s into the 90s, and even today. And there was no prime primetime uh, television for wrestling back in the early 70s. It was, you'd find it on like channel, you know, like PBS, and it was at off hours. You could find it, but it wasn't like the WWF, or actually it was the WWWF That we watched when I was a kid, Worldwide Wrestling Federation. Then they shortened it to the WWF, World Wrestling Federation. And then I think they got sued by the World uh, Wildlife Foundation and they changed their name uh, to the WWE. Naturally, um, back then, I'm talking when I first started as a lawyer, it was clear to my boss at the time that I had a massive amount of popular culture in my head that exists to today. So, Of course, he asked me to be in the initial meeting because he figured, hey, maybe Jeff knows something about this. And Jim Helwig, Jim, uh, the client, had grievances naturally. This was the story of his life with Vince McMahon, who was the head of the WWF, the owner, the Grand Poobah. Jim had been fired from the WWF for insubordination prior to a big pay-per-view event that occurred during the summer of 1991. We weren't representing him at this point. And he was scheduled to be the headliner with Hulk Hogan. Everybody knows who Hulk Hogan is. Uh, Jim had refused to wrestle, and he like let Vince McMahon know like a couple days before, I think a few days before, that he refused to wrestle. He wanted $500,000, and he really basically held up uh, Vince. And Vince had no choice because of the massive uh, amount of people that were going to be watching and paid on pay-per-view to watch the Ultimate Warrior wrestler. Wrestle, excuse me. So Vince paid the money, and as being Vince being Vince, he naturally suspended him like seconds after the match ended. And he had him under contract, but he suspended him for his insubordination. Vince eventually took uh, Jim back about a year later or so, but then let him go because the WWF was catching a lot of heat at the time. This is hard to remember, but this was a big deal. Uh, Its wrestlers were all on steroids. They were all these monster huge guys, and Jim was the poster boy for steroids, I suppose, in the WWF. He was just gigantic. And he had tested positive uh, for steroids or human growth hormone, whatever it was, and Vince let him go again. And that's when we had met with him. It was around the fall of 1992 in uh, our offices. And he came into the office, I remember, like he just stepped out of the ring. And one of the things I should add is the reason why I like talking about some of these old clients is that sometimes it's years that I go without thinking about them. And when I actually force myself to think about them, it brings back a lot of good and some bad memories. But Vince had, uh, excuse me, Jim had come into the office and he was wearing this this light brown duster coat, like you would see in the spaghetti Western movies that this Clint Eastwood or Lee Van Cleef were wearing, except that the duster was made of leather. His hair was like frosted blonde. It was long halfway down his back and and the guy was just huge like the biggest person you'd ever seen and it wasn't because he was necessarily so tall but he just was so hugely muscular that it made him seem even taller he just was like a mountain and he looked like uh, you know he had like hair like the lead singer of poison you know if the lead singer of poison weighed 275 pounds and had muscles on top of muscles i was about five foot ten and 170 back then and when i met him I felt like a small child next to him, and he seemed like he was like eight feet tall. Anyway, at this meeting, uh, Jim was really pissed. He had just this boundless energy. You've never met anybody like this. He just couldn't stop talking. He was going a mile a minute. And when he spoke, it was like he was, uh, it it was like he was was like a physical phenomenon. It wasn't just words that came out. It it was like uh, he was like, like uh, straining his muscles, every, the cords in his neck. It was a real physical endeavor for him to speak when he got all excited. And he had all these ideas of what he wanted to do. And, and a lot of it was just bonkers. I mean, it was just crazy. But you couldn't talk to him like he was a normal person when he would get on these rolls, because he was just so animated and energetic. You would just sit there thinking, when does this stop? It was like a hurricane. He was moving and thinking faster than, than anybody you'd ever seen. And Vince McMahon had naturally screwed him over, screwed him over Jim had claimed. And, and and that was certainly largely true in large parts. Uh, a lot of the stuff that Vince did to him was was bad and vice versa, for sure. He felt that Vince had screwed him because he wanted to keep the name, the trademark to the Ultimate Warrior. And Jim felt, hey, I am the Ultimate Warrior. How can you keep that name when it's it's me? I created that character, ignoring the fact that Uh, There was a contract, at least according to Vince in place, that the name was owned by the WWF. It wasn't the kind of stuff that we were really doing as a law firm. I mean, we were mostly criminal lawyers back then, the firm that I was in, but my boss and I really liked Jim and we just couldn't resist. And so it goes. Now, Jim and I hit it off from the start and we could not have been more different on paper, just could not have been more different. I was a skinny Jewish kid from New Jersey whose entire value to the world, I suppose, was what was inside my head at the time, you know, what I was capable of intellectually. Jim was a few years older and just a, a steroided monster freak from the Midwest whose entire value to the world was what wasn't in his head, all physical. But we bonded bizarrely almost instantly because I think he could quickly see That as crazy as he was, I was just as crazy in terms of my commitment to my job, to my career, to the betterment of myself uh, as a lawyer. I worked all the time back then. I had nothing else that mattered. It was 1992, and all I wanted to do was become a great lawyer. And it wasn't so much that I had a desire to become a great lawyer. I had a terrible fear of not becoming a great lawyer. And I, one thing I just knew is that in order for me to get there, I just knew I had to work hard. It would require massive hard work that perhaps uh, people weren't willing to do. And we had so many talks back then about what it took to become great in our fields, what we had to do to get there. He had already reached the pinnacle. I mean, he was the top, uh, you know, at, at that point or just before he got canned, the top of the wrestling world. But he never stopped striving to better himself. He was an enormous pain in the ass, an enormous pain in the ass, but he had a work ethic like none other. And he had one of the best senses of humor of anybody I ever knew and legitimately one of the best laughs you've ever heard. Just this comic, evil, genius laugh. It was so bad, but so good. And it conveyed uh, so much. So Jim was amused by me. And I I guess I, I viewed him as an insane older brother. Again, a very, very bright guy, but just bonkers. He had so little patience for lazy people. And that was one of his traits that I loved. I, I just hate lazy people. And he hated them as much. And, you know, we would start talking about it until both of us uh, were red in the face about how much we hated it. And as I had mentioned, uh, he was on the outs with Vince McMahon and the WWF at the time. And after a few months of meeting Jim, I left the law firm that I was in and, and I had to tell him. And I was moving on to what I consider to be a better place with a better lawyer in charge, Jerry Shargell, with better cases and more trials. And we were really plugged into New York uh, with Jerry. And I wouldn't dare of of asking my old boss to tell him that I was going to poach Jim as a client because it just wasn't right. I didn't want to anger him, mainly because after all, he had taken a chance on me. I mean, nobody else had given me a job out of law school and, and Michael Kennedy had. For better or for worse, he gave me a chance when nobody else would. And I wanted to leave the right way. I didn't want to take a single one of his clients. Nowadays, of course, the world is completely different and there's almost no loyalty from the people that work for you. It's just different. It's very hard to find people who are willing to uh, be what I was as a young lawyer. Young lawyers today, I find, are mostly clowns. They're mostly lazy. They're looking for ways out to not do the work as opposed to actually doing the work. They're more concerned about clicks and and interviews and media, even though when they have no discernible skills, uh, this is the way the generation is. They value different things. So I told Jim I was leaving and he was like, I'm coming with you. And I told him that he couldn't. And he responded, fine, then I'm just going to fire Kennedy and, you know, and that's going to be that. So you're either going to take me now or I'm going to fire him and come to you after. And that put me in a tough spot. And I felt, you know, look, if the guy feels that strongly, who am I to tell him that he can't have the lawyer of his choice? It wasn't like Michael had done any of the work in the case or done anything. And really, we just started. But it was excruciating telling him that I was taking Jim, telling my boss that I was taking him, but he understood. And as I said, he recognized that I had the relationship, and this wasn't exactly like a big money case. So Michael didn't care to his credit. And when I went to my new law firm to work for Jerry Shortgel, Naturally, Jerry viewed Jim as a celebrity, so he wanted to have him over to his apartment for dinner. And I was too young, I suppose, to tell Jerry, no, 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 this is not a good idea. Not a good idea with your family. Not a good idea. But I couldn't. I just started working for him. Jerry lived off of Park Avenue, and he wasn't, he wasn't a gray on Upper East Side type of guy. But compared to Jim and to me, Jerry was like high society. He had a maid like was with in his house, in his apartment every day. Like that was something that was incomprehensible to me growing up. Like what the hell? A maid that was in your apartment from like nine in the morning until the entire day, mainly to watch their dog, Rudy, which of course I found to be hilarious until I got my dog, Calvin. And then we had a maid uh, in the apartment for hours a day just to watch the dog. But that's another story. So Jerry lived in a fancy doorman building and I I told Jim he had to come and he complained. And the one thing about Jim is that when he complained, man, nobody could complain like him. And I consider myself to be a world-class complainer, world-class, but nobody could complain like Jim. The the noises that would come out of him, oh, come on, what, you know, just hilarious. I think back on it, this was decades ago and it's still makes me laugh. So I twisted him to come and, and it was just so comically uncomfortable for me and for Jim. He, he was beyond out of place. He was dressed like a professional wrestler, which is what he was. And Jerry was just this refined dude who got his his beard trimmed all the time around the corner. And Jim is just like the Tasmanian devil, you know, if you combed his hair. That's what it was like in his Upper East Side, the uh, off Park Avenue apartment. And Jerry had no idea what to make of him. And it's not like Jerry couldn't talk to anybody. I mean, this is a guy that, you know, had all sorts of clients, but a professional wrestler is different than anything you've ever encountered in your life. I don't care how many mafia guys you represented, serial killers, fraudsters, a professional wrestler. It's hard to explain, but just a completely wild personality, untamable personality. And they all aren't like that. Let me tell you, because I've known plenty of them. But Jim was just, you know, off the reservation. And I was really just praying at that dinner that Jim wouldn't say anything inappropriate. And if you knew Jim and hung out with him, you knew that you spent a lot of time doing just that, praying that he wouldn't say anything that was inappropriate. He was so honest, whatever thought was in his head would come out, no matter how bad it was, then you hear the (laughs) his evil laugh. But like I said, he just was too honest, which was almost an unfortunate thing. We finished the dinner and we got the hell out of there. Like, I couldn't wait to get out of there. Jim was sweating like a plow horse during the dinner. I'm sure due to the steroids he was taking, despite the fact that he was a vegetarian. the, The meal had to be perfectly prepared for him, like the exact amount of oil on the salmon. There was all these lists of things that Jim needed for his meal, which was hilarious. He was so particular about what food he put into his body. Well, at the same time, you know, he was doing steroids, which is, of course, wrecking his body. So we hit the street, and as soon as we did, he exhaled like he hadn't taken a breath during the entire dinner. And he cursed for like 30 straight seconds, and we both nearly collapsed in laughter. He was so out of place, and he knew it, and he didn't care. It just was like people visiting Tarzan when he was brought out of the jungle and paraded before high society. That's how this was. And the things that he said after, I can't repeat. I just can't. And they were so inappropriate, but so damn funny. I'll take them to my grave. And I wish I could say it on the podcast, but sadly, I'm not the only one listening. So anyway, the things I was doing for Jim at the time were just crazy for a young criminal lawyer. But I was a hustler and I wanted the experience. The more people you expose yourself to, the more you're able to deal with all kinds of people in the future. I knew that. And I grew up in a town that didn't have a lot of uh, variety, didn't have a lot of diversity. It was an all-white town from suburban, you know, blue-collar town from suburban New Jersey. So it was important for me to reach out and meet all kinds. That's what helped me as a lawyer today and has made it easier for me to speak to juries because I can speak to anybody. Anyway, Jim decided he wanted to go on a wrestling tour of Germany. He decided that he wanted to be a Hollywood action star. He wanted to create a comic book, which he did. Somehow, I finagled his way into a B action movie named Firepower. Uh, It was in 1993, and he played a character known as the Swordsman. And he was billed actually as Jim Helwig, and there was a little box around his name on the uh, uh, on the credits uh, in the movie, and it said "Introducing Jim Helwig," which I thought was kind of cool. It was kind of meaningless, I suppose, as a movie, but I, I wanted to deliver that to him, and I. I got him into a movie, and if you look on the internet and you Google firepower, Jim Helwig, two L's, you'll find it, and you can see him in it. I think it's on Amazon Streaming, uh, whatever their service is right now. He basically played himself the ultimate warrior, but he had a, a sword in his hand. Otherwise, he was the same guy. As for the wrestling tour in Germany, I remember dealing with these two German promoters on this shoestring budget, this poor woman named Angela. And it was Jim and a bunch of old-time wrestlers who were no longer in the WWF. Tito Santana was one of them, and he was just an absolute saint. Just a guy who wanted to feed his family. Didn't want any trouble. Just such a pleasure. Jim, of course, was a prima donna and acted like he was still wrestling SummerSlam at the Garden. He drove these promoters insane. He was constantly threatening not to wrestle. He needed every perk, first class this, first class that. He needed to be paid before he stepped into the ring. I'm almost positive. I don't recall with certainty that he asked for more money once he got there. And thank God there were no cell phones back then because it would have been 24 hours a day. It was 1993. No email and no cell phones. So I communicated with him mostly from my home hardline, and I had to run back and forth to the office to send out faxes. Because he insisted that every change that was made in the contract had to be memorialized and signed. And, and oftentimes it was in the middle of the night in New York because Germany was, I don't know, five, six hours ahead. So I'd have to walk to my office at midnight, which luckily wasn't far away because I was a lunatic and all I did was work and I wanted an apartment near my office. So I'd walk and get to the office and I'd send out faxes on, on a fax machine that was like the size of a small refrigerator. Do you remember? the original fax machines. They weren't like they are now. People don't even use them anymore. It had that that thermal, curly, waxy paper that was just ridiculously stupid. And he just drove me crazy on this tour. I got paid so little for this work. The first check I got from him was in May of 1993. I think it was for $5,000, and God knows how many months I had to work for that $5,000. He was a tiny client, even back then of mine, and I was a young lawyer. But he was the first one, and I hung on, despite him pissing me off nearly constantly. It was important to me. It was a client that I had gotten on my own who wanted me and not the guy that he came to the law firm for, and I suppose it appealed to my vanity. I didn't want to lose him. But in addition, as anybody who knew him, as crazy as he made you, there was just something so charming about him, very likable. Even when you wanted to kill him, there was like this this childlike way about him that you wanted to protect him, even though he was an absolute disgusting pain in the ass a lot of the times. And during this period uh, of still being on the outs with Vince McMahon and the WWF, we get contacted by the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York, and they were indicting Vince for conspiring to distribute steroids. And basically required all these wrestlers to to take steroids is what they were claiming. And it was ridiculous because it wasn't true. It was such a dumb case. The government subpoenaed all of these wrestlers as their witnesses to testify that Vince didn't tell them to take steroids. They felt they had to take them to be big, but Vince never told them to. Jim was there. Hulk Hogan was there. Only one wrestler said that Vince required, told them you have to take steroids. But, you know, obviously with everybody else saying otherwise, and these were the government's witnesses, you can imagine how badly the trial went. This was 1994, I believe. And Jim really hated Vince back then, just hated him. But in a weird kind of way, and this is no secret, he really respected him and loved him. He just felt that Vince was so evil, he just respected him for it. He, you know, did you ever have that kind of relationship with someone who they're just so evil. You have to give them credit. You got to say, look, man, I got to give you credit. You're so fucking evil, but I have to give you credit. And Jim testified for the government and he helped sink their case against Vince. And I was with Jim at that court appearance and it was it was a lot of fun for me. It was amazing, first of all, to see Jim in a suit. He didn't wear a tie, but he wore a suit. He had his hair in and in a ponytail. And looking back, um, it was just an, an impossible case to win The government doesn't do these types of things today, take cases on, that they make cases that they shouldn't have, that they have no chance of winning. But nevertheless, uh, Vince had great lawyers representing him. Laura Bravetti is a criminal lawyer from New York, and she's just wonderful. kind of below the radar now, but she's wonderful. Just, you know, a a fantastically talented uh, female lawyer, any kind of lawyer, forget female. And Jerry McDivitt was Vince's corporate lawyer from Pittsburgh who also did some criminal work. And, and I was young, but I knew a good lawyer when I saw him. And, and Jerry was just fantastic. He had a real great way about him with people. But this contact, I suppose, with Vince's lawyers, because, you know, we're dealing with that kind of stuff back then. I think uh, Jim telling the truth when he really could have screwed Vince, it, it began to mend some fences with Vince. Not that Vince ever took any of this stuff personally. He was all about the business. He didn't care. You could do whatever you wanted to him. The guy was all about the business, and that really is to his great credit. They contacted us about having Jim come back to the WWF, and it was such a pain in the ass to negotiate this contract, as Jim just wanted so many things. It was like, you know, a rock uh, god saying that he wanted a certain color of MMs in his uh, dressing room at every uh, city that he toured, and you have to remove the green ones. Anyway, so uh, the WWF was so used to treating its wrestlers like animals, and Jim just refused. And that was always the source of his problems with Vince. And for the most part, Jim wasn't really wrong. He insisted on getting everything that he could out of Vince, and Vince just didn't want to make any special arrangements for any wrestler unless it was like Hulk Hogan because he was so big. So regardless, we had to put together this ridiculous contract. Jim got to sell his merchandise separately at matches, not through the WWF, and he could keep more or even all of the proceeds of it. The WWF sold Jim's comic book that he had just made. It was just madness, and I knew in my heart that it was going to end badly. I just knew it. And I dealt mostly with Jerry McDivitt, the lawyer, the corporate lawyer, and Linda McMahon, Vince's wife, when uh, working on this contract. As I said, Jerry was just the best. I haven't spoken to him, I think, in decades. But we had a lot of laughs working together, dealing with these insane wrestling people. They were just nuts. Linda, on the other hand, was this Southern belle. And she wasn't like she was 18. I mean, she had to be, God, back then, I don't know, late 40s or early, I don't remember. But she was not, not a young woman, not an old woman. But she was this Southern belle and had the best accent you've ever heard just like all sugar magnolias and daffodils, but it was hilarious because she was like an iron fist in a velvet glove. Just this brutally tough woman when she needed to be, but it came out with this accent and it never felt like you were getting brutalized. It was really uh, fantastic. This was an incredibly effective woman who I really grew to just love. She was just so strong and, and so funny and was no appendage of Vince. That's what people don't appreciate if they look at it from the outside. She was not Vince's wife in all this. She ran a large part of this on her own, and she's who I dealt with mostly. Now, I think that I mentioned, I don't know if I had, that Jim was wildly cheap. Just the worst client when it came about paying. Getting a nickel out of him was like a fight to the death. So naturally, um, he wanted to pay me a percentage of his earnings going forward, not just for my time, because it would have been cheaper for him. This way he could just torture me for hour upon hour upon hour. And I reluctantly agreed. Again, I was a lawyer for just a few years. I had no idea what I was capable of yet in the law. This was like 1993, 94, whatever it was, mid 90s. I mean, I was a kid. I wasn't even 30 yet. And I wanted to keep the client. So we negotiated this. Million-dollar fee for Jim to be paid out over time as he earned money from the WWF. McMahon offered Jim, which was then at the time really unprecedented. Uh, It was a million dollars guaranteed over 18 months. He agreed to transfer all the Ultimate Warrior trademarks to Jim, which is all he cared about the most. He also agreed to pay Jim an extra $2,500 per every day that he had to work if he worked more than 14 days in any calendar month, which is pretty good. Finally, the WWF uh, agreed to promote Jim's wrestling school and, as I said, his comic book. It was a, really a crazy good deal. I, I wish I could say that it was me that was responsible for it. I did it, but it was just Jim's refusal to take what they were offering, and he had just all these demands. So now we have the deal ready to be signed, and this is historical stuff. I mean, this is you know major historical stuff for the wrestling world, that the ultimate warrior who had been banished was about to make a comeback with the WWF. Tickets were sold, and it was just crazy. Vince had been acquitted of the steroids charges in federal court. This is important. So there had been had to be put a a drug clause in Jim's contract because Vince didn't want any trouble. And there was going to be some surprise drug tests after wrestling events. And you know, Vince was walking what he considered to be as tight of a, you know, a line as possible. He didn't want any issues. I mean he had just gotten acquitted. He could have gone to jail. And Jim assured me that he was done with steroids, so this was just a non-issue, you know, the drug stuff. Naturally, the night before he was to sign the contract, uh, he calls me up and says he has to speak to me about something, and tells me, of course, that he's still taking the steroids, that he just felt he had to maintain the character, to maintain the size of the ultimate warrior. That's what the fans demanded. And I literally, I remember, I don't know if you've ever had this, where you've ever had something happen that's so traumatic that you could actually feel your bowels loosening. That's what happened. They say I I nearly shit my pants. That's what happened. I just felt like, ugh, ugh. I could feel it. Like Now you're telling me after we're signing, we're delivering the signed contract tomorrow, and now I'm going to tell Vince McMahon that he needs to remove the drug clause? I, I screamed at him. I remember screaming, and then we both started laughing. And he signed the contract. I wasn't going to tell Vince. I just couldn't. He would just, Jim uh, Jim would just have to take a shot, I guess. I mean, what was I going to do? It was the night before. But as all of our arguments, they always ended up in laughing because we just knew each other so well. I was getting paid in dribs and drabs. Every time he got paid his piddly amount, I would get one twentieth of the piddly amount. And Jim was like a daily disaster back then. There was always something was happening high drama where I have to call Jerry or Linda on behalf of Jim. The funniest was when uh, Vince called my phone. I think it was sometime in the spring of 1996. This is my memory. And and it really has burned in my head. Jim was scheduled to wrestle in the next couple of days. I think it was in Philadelphia. And Vince called me up and said, you know, uh, and you could actually picture him on the phone, like with his, his hand by his mouth. And he's sort of like looking both ways. Uh, and says to me, uh, let Jim know uh, that he's going to be uh, randomly drug tested after the show in Philly. And I was like, oh, thinking of myself so much for these random drug tests. You know, I have no idea if whatever urine that Jim supplied was his own for that drug test, but the whole drug testing program was really just a sham. And the truth is, why shouldn't it have been? Wrestling was a sham, it wasn't real, this wasn't the Olympics. The wrestlers who were carefully drug tested, I suppose, you know, were the minor ones that they could fire and sort of hang somebody's uh, scalp out there to show that they're serious about steroids. But the big draws were clearly handled differently. I mean, think back on it. This was entertainment. What, What the hell? The idea that they had to be policed like it was a sport, a professional sport of the Olympics is absurd. It was entertainment. That's all it ever was. They want to take steroids the hell, who cares? But now at this point, he's coming back. Jim's making his big comeback. And I noticed that he's starting to, now that he has to actually pay me, because I did all that work for free until the money started coming, all those negotiations, months of it. And he started growing distant. And this was how he was. He was weird. And he ended up firing me and naturally he didn't do it but he had some decrepit old lawyer in New York that was some old guy who I suspect is probably dead now. It was bizarre. It just so, it was so lame, not even a phone call. It was so cowardly, but it really wasn't surprising to me because that was Jim. He hated confrontation and he was really cheap. So those two things together, bing, bang, boom. And I was pissed. I was pissed. And, And now I didn't have to tolerate him anymore to keep the client. So I just was like, you know what? Now I'm going to teach you what I've learned as a lawyer. I was a young kid still, but I knew a lot, and I learned a lot, and I was going to use it on him. So I drew up a federal civil complaint, and I subpoenaed all of his financial records, and after all, I knew where all of them were, and we, uh, I filed the federal lawsuit, and the judge that I got, uh, there's a wheel that's spun, and that's how you get your, your cases you put your, or not I don't do it, but the clerk does. It puts their hand inside and pulls out a name of a judge, and that's how you determine who your judge is for the case. Who was the judge? Now Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. She was back then a Southern District federal judge. I paid a process server to find Jim, and eventually they did. He did all he could to avoid being served, and he was literally hiding in his office. I was told underneath his desk at this gym he had opened. I think it was in New Mexico at the time, I believe or Arizona, I think New Mexico. And I had, as I said, I had all of his financial records that were being delivered from every bank, from everything. And I had them delivered to my local counsel in Arizona who I had hired and paid. And then of course, once I served them and Jim realized that he was going to have to pay more, he called me. Now I have no doubt that the reason he, he called me was solely because of the money, not because he felt bad about what he did. He didn't want me having his money. He didn't want me having his financial records. Period. And I ended up letting him off the hook. I settled for very little money, not all that I was owed. I I just gave the guy a break, even though I really had him by the balls. It wasn't worth it to me, the money. It was minor dollars, even though I was poor at the time. It was never about money when it came to me and him. I just wanted to show him that I wasn't taking his shit and that he'd show me the respect that I had, in my mind, more than earned. I was young as a lawyer. But I knew that I needed to show him, I can put my hands on you whenever I want if you're going to wrong me. And he understood that. And I'm not, I wasn't the lawyer then that I am now. I would never have taken a case like that now. Never would have gotten run around like like an idiot for no money. But again, I was like 29, 30 years old. So we ended up losing touch for a while after that. Uh, He ended up suing Vince and nothing really was going well for him. Uh, this was after he had got terminated again from the WWF. He just couldn't get out of his own way, and it drove everyone around him just crazy. He would call me on occasion and complain about his lawyers, about the old guy, and you know, now I was older, but I had no interest in getting involved in in like these stupid litigations for no money. He would always be asking me questions about things like I had all this knowledge in criminal law. I had done the Gotti trial in two thousand and five, and I suppose I had become uh well known because of it. And uh, Jim popped up more frequently after that. And at that point he then apologized to me for real, as much as Jim was capable of apologizing, which is like twenty percent of a normal person. His legal name was Warrior at the time, but everybody was calling him Warrior before it just was his legal name, I suppose, in an effort to have a better grounds to get the ultimate warrior trademarks. But I just never could call him Warrior. That's how he referred to himself and that's what his friends and family and his children were even named. Their last name was Warrior, and still is today. But I just couldn't call him Warrior. To me he was always Jim. It just seemed silly. But as I said, he would always ask me these questions about areas of law that I had no knowledge of. I mean I'm a criminal lawyer, man. You know, it's like asking a dentist to do brain surgery. You know, it's like asking a brain surgeon to work on your bunions. It's like you're you know, you're old doctors, I suppose. But I didn't know anything about any of this stuff. And it was always just crazy, these serpentine, Byzantine fact patterns of things all about Vince, all the things that Vince had done and other people that had screwed him. Probably he screwed them, but he was again aggrieved. But he saw me differently after the Gotti trial. Whereas before he had been at the height of his profession and I was a young lawyer, now I was at the height of my profession and he wasn't at the height of his. So it was a different dynamic. And I had, no interest, as I said, in a professional relationship, and he certainly asked me many times. I just didn't want to sue the WWF and he was frankly too nutty to have as a client now that I had a real career. And he wasn't like the worst guy to have as a client. It just was you could never make enough money to justify the time you're spending. And when you've got a lot of other work, a lot of other cases, what what choice do you have? You know, you gotta work on the cases that are paying, on the cases where people could die in jail if you lose. I, I, I couldn't be distracted by this craziness. But nevertheless, we became closer, I suppose. He really respected me and talked to me differently. Not that he was ever disrespectful to me other than not paying me. He wasn't that kind of guy. I mean, he was he was always respectful. But he really, like, hung on my word, any kind of advice that I gave him. We would talk about every kind of personal thing that there was. Again, when, when we would speak together, the two of us, He would go 100 miles an hour, and we'd end up laughing so hard. And anybody who's listening to this who knew Jim just knows that about him. He was that funny. He was so inappropriate, so hilarious. The things that would come, you just couldn't help but laugh. He was that funny. He was so politically incorrect. And he had now two daughters at the time, and he was so devoted to them. He had become more conservative politically and it wasn't like we ever talked about politics earlier in the early times just the world had changed where it seemed like you almost had to take a position as to what you believed in it wasn't like a party he never talked about a party the republicans or the democrats he just had conservative values and this is i don't consider this to be a conservative value but he had no use for gays at all he didn't dislike them never said like that he hated gays he just would say you know they can't reproduce so what was their use for society? They can't reproduce. So if the entire world was gay, we would all just disappear. We would expire. We would go like the dinosaurs did. We'd become extinct. And I understood where he was coming with from that. It, it kind of makes sense in theory, because you can't re- well, whatever you can't, but you can't say things like that. You just can't. And I was like, dude. And naturally my response was that I had to get him on the radio to do some interviews. I was doing talk radio after the Gotti trial with Curtis Slewa at WABC. And I did a lot of my own shows as well. I was on all the time. And WABC only was the most talked, excuse me, the only the most listened to talk radio station in America. Think about it. It was the number one station in New York City. New York City had the most listeners. Ergo, WABC was the most listened to talk radio station in the nation. And it was like white knuckle time, but this is sort of my personality. I knew that this was crazy to do it. I knew that this was probably going to end badly, but I figured, you know what? This is going to be fun. So I warned the producer. uh, It was Frank Morano at the time, uh, who's got his own radio show on WABC in the middle of the night now. And he was, you know, we were all terrified. And Uh, Jim went right up to the line. I mean, he went right up to the line and he might've crossed that he was dancing on it. He came very close to getting bleeped, but he never got bleeped. And there was, you know, we had like a, I think it was a seven second delay, but being on the radio with him was exactly how our phone calls went. We would be 15 seconds into it and we'd be talking a, a mile a minute and we completely forgot that we were on the radio. We just had our regular conversation on the radio. And we just laughed the entire time. I had him on a few times, and every time it was great radio. It was really just awesome. And we remained in touch and spoke regularly. And every call, it was the same complaints about the next generation being soft and how much we hated what liberalism had done to the country. This was, you know, we both felt the same way. We had really come full circle, I suppose. We had the exact same thoughts on so many issues. He had calmed down to some degree but still was the most intense guy that I knew. Instead of wanting to create things for himself, and this is really interesting. I thought about this last night when I was thinking about him. He was no longer really focusing on projects. I mean, he was doing them, but that's not what we would talk about. He just had this sadness about, you know, where the world was going. I suppose having young daughters would do that. He was like the main character in The Catcher in the Rye. He wanted to save the world for his two daughters. He wanted to catch them. He wanted to protect them from a world that he had seen as growing increasingly disgusting and amoral and undisciplined and lazy. He was doing a lot of writings back then. And he was, as I said, his writings were conservative leaning. He just simply hated the insanity of the left. He just thought they were frivolous idiots. I can't can't really say that, you know, he was wrong. He was never more coherent, intelligent, or curious as he was at the end of his life. He was well-read, shockingly so. He understood the issues. We would talk about things that political things that meant a lot to me. He understood them all. He was really a pleasure to talk to, and then you got to hear his laugh. When I learned that he had suffered a massive heart attack and died in 2014, I honestly, I couldn't believe it. I don't know if you've ever had anybody close to you die that you're just shocked. You just can't believe that it could be. And I've had close people to me die before, but this was different. He just was too strong to die. It never really, it never really crossed my mind that he was capable of dying. It just never entered my thinking. He was only 54. I'm 57 now. I just couldn't believe it. I just, I actually couldn't believe it. I I Googled it. I saw it. I'd seen it come up on the news. I just had to look at it three or four times before I could believe. How could he? He's just sick. So I sent him a text and I told him that I loved him. I told him that he was my brother. And then I wrote to his wife in the next text. And I said, I'm so sorry. And I I looked at it because I still have the text. I'm so sorry for you and the girls. He talked about all of you all the time. I love the guy like a brother and that's what i wrote to uh to dana his widow in the end he was known as a legendary wrestler but that was the least of what he was when he died he just was so much more and for that i would say it was a life well lived the ultimate warrior and if he was listening to all this right now he'd be laughing and screaming at me for not telling all the really bad stories Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. I'll be back in a second to talk about a few things in the news. I'm back. A couple of things in the news. I'm not going to belabor these, but they're annoying to me. So if they annoy me, I'm going to annoy you with them. On July 7th of this week, Hunter Biden was given a front row seat at the White House to watch his father hand out the Presidential Medal of Freedom to 17 honorees. This is the highest civilian honor that can be given out in America. The highest, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And Hunter was seen by the press greeting these honorees, put in a place of maximum exposure for the press and the world to see. The front row, he was Joe Biden's son, the smartest man Joe Biden claims he's ever known. Now. On that same day, July seventh, the day the hunter was greeting the presidential medal of freedom honorees, some news was released to the press. News that came from Hunter Biden's laptop, which he seems to have taken everywhere with him, recording every one of his awesome hijinks. I mean, it's insane. What he, ever, he didn't film on the laptop, he managed to upload to the laptop pictures, recordings that he made from his phone. He apparently felt, I suppose, that this very important life that he was living needed to be chronicled for future generations, like, you know, like the the bugs, the microphones that were in Richard Nixon's office. Everything had to be chronicled. The only difference is that this was a degenerate, sex-addicted crackhead. On that same day, July 7th, that Hunter was greeting the Presidential Medal of Freedom honorees, information leaked from the laptop, which, again, everybody acknowledges is real and was his. It was a video of Hunter Biden smoking, drinking alcohol and playing with himself in a float tank at a Massachusetts wellness center. This is in January of 2019. This is just three years ago. This is just days, by the way, when he did this, just days after he asked his dead brother's wife for $3,000 for the down payment for rehab. Okay, so when he took this video, he needed $3,000. He didn't have $3,000 to pay for rehab. That's the dead brother who Hunter named his child after. He has a kid named Bo. That's the dead brother whose uh, wife Hunter slept with after he died. The president's son took the video of himself. Again, this was retrieved from his abandoned laptop. While he was meant to be uh, undergoing these, this detox treatment at this Blue Water Wellness Rehab Center, in Massachusetts. The video begins with a nude hunter floating in the water and playing with his penis as this uh, soothing New Age music plays in the background. He later proceeds to take several hits from what appears to be a crack pipe and is staring wild-eyed into the camera as the music plays. He managed to somehow get crack, and he's also drinking alcohol during the same video. He got crack and alcohol into the rehab and he's doing all this in the float tank in the 7 minute video instead of doing and cleansing uh, his body of all the negative energy at a rehab for drug and alcohol he is drinking alcohol and smoking crack while masturbating in the tank all the time knowingly videotaping himself now this blue water wellness center uh, claims to be a quote healing place for the mind and body doesn't seem to have really taken when it came to Hunter Biden. Now, a month earlier, this was now in in December of 2018, Joe Biden wired Hunter $75,000 to cover his alimony payments, his costs, as well as an additional $20,000 for yet another treatment program in New York City. Hunter is currently under investigation by the U.S. Attorney's Office in Delaware for tax fraud and money laundering related to his international business dealings. He's the target of a federal criminal investigation. He's a crackhead. He's a sex addict. He had sex with his dead brother's wife. He searched the internet for pornography featuring 12-year-olds. Yes, that that was on his laptop as well. He had all sorts of massive security issues due to trading contact with his father to foreign countries. That's how he made money. And yet he was in the front row at a White House ceremony bestowing the highest civilian honor on Americans this past week. And also revealed, I mean, it's just, it's stun, stunning to me that on the day that that came out, Joe Biden felt it was appropriate to have Hunter in the front row so everyone can see. Now, also what came out the day before this honoring at the White House where Hunter was in the front row Reports came out of emergency U.S. oil reserves being sent overseas to nations, including China, the country you know that gave us COVID, killed a million Americans, and is trying desperately to destabilize our economy. More than 5 million barrels of oil released from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve were diverted to European and Asian nations instead of U.S. refineries. This was done supposedly to combat high gasoline prices because of what Biden calls The Putin's price hike, which of course isn't true. And naturally, uh, giving them the 5 million barrels didn't work. 950,000 of these barrels of oil were sent to a Chinese state owned gas company because they own, you know, these are state run companies. This was a company that continues to purchase Russia's gas. So we're helping a company in China, which gave us COVID, and they're helping Russia. And this is all done to supposedly help us even though they're buying Russian gas, which is supposedly raising our own gas prices. But here's the best part of what Joe Biden did. Did The Chinese-owned company that that, that he gave the gas, the oil to, they sold a $1.7 billion stake in their company to who? To Hunter Biden's private equity firm seven years ago. Imagine how much money Hunter Biden stuffed into his pocket from that deal alone 1.7 billion dollar stake now this was while his dad was the vice president he is dealing with china with state run chinese companies it's so insane i mean why else would you do it why else would they give him a stake clearly because hunter biden could be bribed to provide access for these chinese officials to joe biden and yet 7 years later hunter is uh, is begging his, actually, this wasn't seven years, that was 2015. This is now the end of 2018. Just a few years later, Hunter is begging his dead brother's wife for $3,000 for a down payment for another rehab where he ended up just smoking crack inside it. How about don't get rehab and just smoke the crack when you get done? No, had to smoke the crack inside the rehab. And his judgment is so good, there's no reason to believe he could possibly be compromised. He's got such wonderful judgment. His judgment so good that he recorded every dalliance with hookers, every crack pipe that he ever had in his mouth. There's a text of him calling the first lady of our country a dumb cunt. Those are his words, not mine. Those were in text on his laptop, all released. And Joe Biden felt it was important to put him in the front row of a huge press event. Now, I do uh, radio interviews every Monday morning on WOR Radio in New York City at 7.05 a.m. New York time. And I'm laughing, thinking about a recent appearance that I did where uh, one of the hosts is a leftist. And I asked him to name one good thing that Joe Biden had done since he's been in the office. And he answered, Joe Biden brought dignity back to the White House. This is how dumb Democrats are. That's dignity. That's dignity. I'll give you more. Of stupidity of Democrats because there is more. This week, Joe Biden is scheduled to visit the Middle East and he's visiting Saudi Arabia and Israel. Naturally, Democrats hate Saudi Arabia because they have a bad record on human rights. And you know that Democrats are all about human rights. Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, the leader of Saudi Arabia, is believed to have been behind the 2018 murder of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi in uh, Turkey. That's where he was killed. Khashoggi first came to prominence for a series of interviews he did with Osama bin Laden. Khashoggi was not an American citizen. His murder did not occur in America. Instead, he was a vicious Jew hater and a hater of America. He opposed the intrusion of Western influence in the Middle East. In the 1970s, he joined the radical terror group, the Muslim Brotherhood, which created Hamas. This is the the radical Muslim terror group, which has killed countless Americans inside Israel. In one of his uh, last Washington Post columns, Khashoggi again praised the Muslim Brotherhood. Again, the Muslim Brotherhood created Hamas, is opposed to America and our allies in the Middle East. This is who the Democrats care about. All of these values that Khashoggi had naturally are ones that Democrats love. So you can guess that they were crazy up in arms over a Jew-hating, America-hating, non-American being killed inside an embassy building in Turkey, a place where Khashoggi went due to his close relationship to the leader of Turkey, who happens to be yet another Jew-hating, America-hating dictator who leads a party that really is in the mold of the Muslim Brotherhood. The leader of Turkey, Erdogan, in, during his rule, Turkey has really become a Muslim terror state. They support Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood. They protect these people. They commit their own terrorism from there. In Turkey, during the rule of Erdogan, there have been so many murders and imprisonments of journalists. And today, there are more journalists behind bars in Turkey than in any other country, including even China, which comes in second. Democrats also hate the fact that the Saudis are becoming increasingly close to Israel. The Saudis and Israel have been enemies for for generations. But now they have a mutual enemy in Iran. Which when they're not attacking Israel through their terror proxies Hamas and Hezbollah Islamic Jihad, they're also attacking the Saudis with the Houthis, another Iranian terror proxy. Israel and Saudi Arabia have become strange bedfellows, but they are bedfellows nevertheless. They need each other to deal with Iran. So the Democrats really hate Saudi Arabia. They, they can't stand the fact that the Saudis are uh, getting close to Israel. Biden, when he, when he goes to Israel, is going to show a symbol of this new closeness by flying directly from Israel to Saudi Arabia. This is a flight that to this day is not allowed by the Saudis. They don't let Israeli planes uh, fly over their country. Now, Biden needs to visit Saudi Arabia because we really need more oil to be produced to ease the massive price increases of gasoline in America. Biden knows that we have elections in November and Democrats are poised to get absolutely destroyed and high gas prices will certainly piss people off to no end. So without control of the Congress and the Senate, if he loses both, none of his far left agenda can get passed. So he needs the Saudis, despite months ago vowing to turn them into a pariah of the world. That's what he called them. Suddenly now he wants them reproachment furthermore biden actually explained in his own words or somebody's words that wrote for him why he needs to visit the saudis quote as president it is my job to keep our country strong and secure we have to counter russia's aggression put ourselves in the best possible position to outcompete china and work for greater stability in a consequential region of the world which which it really is I and mean, let's be honest the middle east has a lot of triggers there uh, for america I'm going to further quote Biden, to do these things, we have to engage directly with countries that can impact those outcomes. Saudi Arabia is one of them. And when I meet with Saudi leaders on Friday, my aim will be to strengthen a strategic partnership going forward that's based on mutual interests and responsibilities while also holding true to fundamental American values. So I guess he doesn't consider them a pariah anymore. He doesn't want to destroy them. Now he needs them. So he's speaking a different tune. And the truth is we do need the Saudis. We do. And they are changing, which is great. I mean, they're no longer, in my mind, a Muslim terror state, and it's probably because Iran is attacking them. So they have no choice but to grow closer to Israel, because Israel is the only country in the region that can stand up to Iran, and obviously Israel's greatest ally is America. So Biden is going there, and Democrats are screaming, even even though we really do need them uh, for all these reasons. As I said, the to combat Iran, China, to combat Russia, and to help us with our gas prices. We need more production of oil because Biden's selling our oil overseas. He's not drilling as much anymore in his attempts to get America off of oil and onto alternative fuels. Climate change, obviously, is the holy grail to leftist idiots. So listen to this poll. This is the, the part that I find to be hilarious. If you're a Democrat, listen up clearly. A poll was done recently, and and here's the results. People, groups were asked three different questions about their feelings about Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia. The first question was simply, do you approve of Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia? Completely neutral. Just do you uh, agree with the trip? That was it. The second question was slanted towards Israel. Joe Biden is going to the Middle East to visit Israel and Saudi Arabia, and the reason for the visit to Saudi Arabia has to do with national security for Israel. A third group was asked yet a different question. Joe Biden is going to the Middle East to visit Israel and Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is a country important to the global energy market. Do you approve or disapprove? So the first question is, do you approve simply of the trip? The second question was, do you approve of the trip when it's slanted towards helping Israel? And the third one is, do you approve of the trip if it's slanted to help Saudi Arabia? Regarding, as I said, just the the general question about the trip, the responses were split down the middle, half approved of the trip and half disapproved. In in the group which was asked the second question, which favored Israel, only 25% approved and 31% disapproved. As for the third question, which favored Saudi Arabia, only 23% approved and 33% disapproved. But when you broke the numbers down by party, Republicans disapproved of the trip only, I mean, other than the, the, the general neutral one, only when the Saudis were favored in the question. The Democrats, they disapproved the trip more, the most, when Israel was invoked in the question. So they think worse of Israel than Saudi Arabia, which is not exactly a place for any kind of human rights. I mean, they cut people, they have a chop-chop square where they cut people's heads off in public. Democrats, by the way, Republicans, as I said, you know, were slanted towards Israel, but Democrats under the age of 35 went from disproving this, uh, disproving this trip, disapproving of this trip from 8% in the neutral question to 30% when Israel was invoked. They didn't have a problem with the trip. Only 8% were against it when they were just asked about the trip. When they were told that the trip was going to help Israel, suddenly 30% Disapproved of the trip. Young Democrats hate Israel. That's crazy, right? And there's more. In a late June poll, most Republicans, 59%, want the United States to lean towards Israel in its dispute with the Iranian-backed Palestinians who have killed Americans. They celebrated on 9/11, and they're run by genocidal Muslim terror groups. 59%, and I'm not going to give you the numbers that were unsure but 59% want the United States to lean towards Israel. These are Republicans. Just 2% of Republicans want America to lean towards the Palestinians. So Republicans favor Israel, 59% too. Democrats, 19% lean towards the Palestinians and just 13% towards Israel. As for young Democrats under the age of 35, 27% want the United States to lean towards the Muslim terror enclave of Palestine, because that's what it is. They execute gays. They have no elections. They openly call for the genocide of Jews. 27% of young Democrats want America to lean towards them, and just 10% of young Democrats lean towards Israel. How fucking crazy and scary is that? So to liberal Jews who vote Democratic, you should strongly consider choking yourself, because you are that dumb. Now, Not only are Democrats insane to support an Iranian-backed Muslim terror entity over Israel, which happens to be America's greatest ally in the Middle East by a mile, and this is a hugely important area to America, they were asked in the same poll to list America's closest allies. Listen to this. Republicans named England first and Israel second. I mean, you look, who's our most important allies in the world? England? And Israel, that's commonsensical. Democrats, they also said England first. But they put Israel ninth, behind China. Again, let me say this slowly for the liberals that are dumb enough to continue to listen to this podcast. Democrats believe China is a greater ally to America than Israel. China killed a million Americans with COVID. They have spies all over our country. They're seeking to destabilize our country. They're not our ally. They're our enemy. But Democrats hate Israel, meaning Jews. Democrats hate Jews so much they believe Israel is a lesser of an ally than China. China aligns with Russia in their slaughter of Ukrainians. China has two million Muslims locked away in concentration camps. They have population control. Yet somehow Democrats believe they are a greater ally to America than Israel is which would be funny if it wasn't so sad. Again, you need to understand this. China is our enemy, not even close to being our ally. But that's today's Democratic Party. To my young uh, listeners in Texas, Chloe, Justin, Ashley, Haley, Bailey, Brandon, and all my other listeners, ask any liberal idiot you run across if they can explain to you why China is a closer ally to America than Israel is. Israel, which provides intelligence to America that has prevented countless hundreds, if not thousands, of lost American lives due to terror attacks. Ask those liberals that you're close to, ask them, why is China? I just want one answer, just one. Why is China a closer ally to America than Israel is? Jeffrey Lickman, Beyond the Legal Limit. You can hear me on Apple Podcasts. You can hear me on Spotify, iHeartRadio. You can go to beyondthelegallimit.com. You can email me with any thoughts, comments, hate, threats. I'm used to it all.